This morning, Jim will be preaching to us from Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 15. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, and went into the Jewish, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of the Lord was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Melissa refers to this room as the gymnatorium. Is that right? And I just thought, I thought I was the gymnatorium. That's what Andrea calls me. No. Actually, now she's mad I said that. But... If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to Acts chapter 17 as we look at God's Word this morning. Um, I want to give you some insight into how preachers think or teachers think when they're preparing lessons. And it doesn't necessarily need to be about the Bible or about Jesus because the, the principles used are actually more about the audience than they are about the content. And any good communicator knows that if he's going to connect with his audience, that his introduction, this part right now, his introduction, her introduction is really, really important. You don't want to blow the introduction. You don't want to get out of the gate slow. So what do you do? You begin at a place where the audience already has interest. You begin in a place where the audience already has a set of beliefs or a set of convictions. And that's why most lessons and most sermons begin with some kind of story or anecdote that everybody can get, for the most part, that everybody agrees with. You don't want to start with 
some kind of controversial statement that just confuses, well, that's not true. That doesn't make sense. No, no, no. You begin with, do you guys remember what it's like when all the students come back in August and the busyness that just seems to almost catch us by surprise and everybody starts going, yeah, I know what that's like. I know what it's like to drive down Perkins Road. I know what it's like to have to wait longer when I'm, when I'm trying to get something to eat. I know what that's like. I know, why? We begin there because that is a moment that we all have a deep interest in ourselves. We begin with a point of reference where there already is like some kind of mutual agreement. Yeah, for the most part. Again, for the most part, we all think like that. We all trust those things to be true. And what you and I trust more than anything else, if we're in one of those honest moments, is we trust our own experiences. We trust our own convictions. We have done the work. We have, um, to the best of our ability, we think we have done the math. And therefore, what we believe about things that are really, really simple or things that are rather profound, God, heaven, hell, um, what is right and what is wrong, those things come to us. And, and to have someone challenge that, well, you don't want to do that at the beginning of a message. You, you want to begin in such a way that everybody is pretty much already on the same page. That, that's what we're taught. We're, we're taught to do that. And I think that whole idea is really, really helpful because it helps us understand the, the complexities and the difficulties that people like Paul and Silas had a long time ago to walk into a place and to walk into a synagogue, to walk into the marketplace um, and begin to preach a message that is going to, in fact, stir up problems, create difficulties. You add, to the, you, add, you add to the fact that not only do preachers like to begin where the audience already are, you add the simple fact that most people, most audiences, love to have like quick takeaway things that are helpful. Give me something really, really good that I can use this afternoon. Not a bad thing. And, and we're a church that says, yeah, but we're going to stop and we're going to go through the book of Acts. I don't know if you're there, but I, can I confess that I am? Acts chapter 17 sounds a lot like Acts chapter 16. A little different than Acts chapter 15, but a lot like Acts chapter 14 and 13. A little different than 12 and, and, and 11 and 10, but boy, it begins to get similar again to chapters like 3 and 4 and 5. It, it seems like Luke just says over and over and over again that the leaders, Peter or Paul, John, Timothy, Silas, Mark, they, they went into a place, usually a synagogue, they shared a message, and then there was this response. Some believe, some don't. Wash, rinse, repeat. Yeah, we get the point. But do we? Do we get the point? In your Bible study, are you ever like just going through the Gospels and it seems like Jesus is saying the same thing over and over again? Why? Maybe because those things not only need to be repeated, but maybe it's sometimes for, for our own benefit to be given things, to be asked to receive things that might not be what we want, that might not be even what we expect. 
but somehow are still for our good. I want to, I want to like preach like interesting things and creative things and fun things. And today we're in Acts chapter 17, where Paul is going to preach at the synagogue in Thessalonica, and then he's going to go down to Berea, and he's going to preach the same thing. And how do we handle that? Maybe what God is wanting us to see, and the reason why he has given, given us the book that is given to us like this, is because it takes a long time to learn how to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And it takes hearing the same stories over and over and over again to really begin to help us understand. Because I could make a statement, like you do know like a Christian's authority is the word of God, in which I get both an amen, and yet if we're really honest, a lot of us are using authorities that are not just the word of God. And I might be able to say, you do understand that the centerpiece of the Christian message is the death, burial, and resurrection. And we all go, amen. But in the end, what you and I practice is more of a, how can we be nice and how can we be kind and how can we care for others kind of a gospel? How how can we socially transform far more than how can we get right with God? This is the tendency, not just of people today, not just of Americans since the 1960s, This is a universal issue. And so the Bible comes to us or Paul and Silas begin to present to God's people in these synagogues reminders, constant reminders so that they might not stray, so that they might be given something that is actually deeper and stronger and more sure than their own interests and their own experiences. Begin to wonder... If that's one of the reasons, not why other people struggle, but maybe why you struggle. Have you ever had one of those moments in your journey with Jesus Christ where you find yourself in, uh, I don't know, we call it like a desert, a spiritual desert? I'm in, I'm in one of those moments right now where I'm in like in this spiritual plateau, And I begin to wonder, is that because as we have kind of gone through life that we've hit a bit of either a rough spot or a rough patch where we're not actually like growing or learning or trusting God's word and God's direction. That instead of us deeply pursuing who God is and growing in our understanding of Jesus Christ and then naturally very much our obedience to him, in the end, we're kind of going to be where we're at. We're going to kind of keep making the same decisions, the same convictions. We're reading the Bible, and the parts that we like, we underline. And the parts that, well, that doesn't, that doesn't match. Have you ever read the Bible, and then as you're reading it, you go, I don't know if I agree with that. Anybody else done that? I don't know if I agree with that. What's the basis? What basis are you using? My basis is, well, that's not how I have experienced life. That's not how my friends have experienced life. That's, that's not what it's like when, when I'm raising kids. He doesn't understand, like, what I'm going through. What do you mean, arrange your marriage like this? That's, see, but Paul wouldn't say that, not, not to my marriage. There's no way, back in, you know, the, the book, of, the book of, uh, of Proverbs, like, they've never had my kids 
and we base so much of our faith, which is so intimately connected with the way that we live, our obedience, on our own experiences. And this isn't a new phenomenon. This is something that every generation of followers, and since the time of Jesus, followers of Jesus have had to wrestle with. And therefore, this text today is not just, how do we go to new cities and preach the gospel? That's one way that we could look at it. But it could be, how do we hear the gospel? How do we, after hearing it over and over and over again, how do we recognize those blind spots or those barriers that you and I have naturally put up? Because why? Because we already know that. Because we're already there. And, and, and I don't mean to do this, and it's not even as calculating as it might sound as I'm presenting it to you. It, it's far more subtle. Those barriers, those obstacles that we have in our faith, they, they really do most, mostly come to us as blind spots where somehow we have reduced our, our, our commitment to God and our understanding of God as being somehow subservient or underneath our personal experiences. Acts chapter 17 maybe is needed so that we can somehow understand that when the word of God is spoken for the first time, that there's going to naturally be a group of people that are going, like, I can't deal with this. Imagine if I said to you, what I'm about to say today is going to radically change your lives. You are going to go home and nothing, nothing that you know is going to be the same. Your marriage is going to be fundamentally turned upside down. Your finances fundamentally turned upside down. How you prioritize the rest of your life turned upside down. How many of you would go, okay, we're going to need a little more than a couple of cute stories. How do you know why there's such opposition? Now, do you know why people are so upset in Burkina Faso? Because the Christian way, the way of Jesus, as promised and prescribed and fulfilled in the biblical text, is in fact, as they described, turning the world upside down. How many of you like your world being turned upside down? This is my concern. That is why I don't grow sometimes. I don't want my world turned upside down. Like I think I can let you into my world. Like I think I got enough. I think I have enough of an understanding of who Jesus Christ is. I think I have enough of a, of a level of obedience to him. I think I have enough. Learning stops. Obedience yields. And things begin to seem rather stale and dry. And I think that's why it's good to say, yeah, this sounds a lot like Acts chapter 16, and maybe that's why we need to hear it, to be reminded once again. First thing that we're actually going to see is what I've already shared with you, the the, the, how much they go back to the authority of the scriptures. This, this really helps me because I can be tempted 
in my conversations with others or just conversations in my own head, I can be tempted to try to find alternative ways of knowing, alternative ways of understanding who God is and being obedient to him. I, I can try to, to figure, else, figure out some other way. One of my favorite conversations I like to have with people when we're just talking about faith to understand who they are is when I ask them, tell me about God, he, her, it, however you want to describe it. Tell me what you know or what you believe about God. And the conversations begin. I'm interested. I've been very fascinated to see that the majority of times people have an idea. They've got an understanding of what he, she, it, what it really is all about. They've got a set of priorities that this deity has. And they begin to describe it to me. And then I love to ask this very simple question. How do you know that? How do you know that to be true? Why do you believe that? And in our quiet moments when we're really, really honest, it, it can be a kind of a humbling effect to go, I, I don't know why I believe that about God. I don't know where I came up with that understanding of what he, she, it is. The idea that God is this impersonal force that exists in the universe, where did you get that from? Tell me it's more than just Star Wars. Your belief that God just kind of looks at our good intents and just literally just says, hey, listen, I get it. Life is complicated. I'm a good guy. Where'd you get that from? Well, you know, it's kind of like Santa Claus, only bigger. I really feel as though I could never please God. I just feel like his, um, his power, it's always like lightning bolts and judgment. Where did you get that from? Oh, had a difficult home life, did you? All of these experiences wreaking havoc upon our lives. And I'm so grateful that the Apostle Paul says, then let's go back. Now, hear me. I get it. He's going to actually trust what the people trust. He's in a synagogue. And so the one thing that these people have built their lives around in terms of their identity is the Bible. And so that's where he turns. The Apostle Paul says, a little bit of a, uh, of a it's, it didn't happen literally like this, but turning your scrolls to, I hope you know this, there was literally one scroll. Didn't have your own scrolls. Didn't pull up your eye scrolls. They didn't have eye scrolls. Okay? But they would read it. And that's how the Apostle Paul begins. The one thing that he knew they trusted, the one thing he knew that they had invested in is the Word of God. And the Apostle Paul begins there says in verse 1, Acts chapter 17. So when they come to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews, and Paul went in as was his custom. By the way, this won't always be his custom. Things are going to change as he continually meets opposition and opposition and opposition. And by the way, this, this is given to us not just as a, hey guys, take notes. This is a really good technique. Far deeper than that. This is the story of the church in terms of how they understood God's call and God's purpose on them as individuals and as a community. And as was his custom on three Sabbath days, which is just a way of saying roughly like a three-week period of time, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. And verse three kind of tells us not only like from the scriptures, but, but what they were reasoning about, explaining and proving 
that it was necessary. That's like a specific word pointing to um, the complexity and the problem of the Messiah and who Jesus was and how that fact that Jesus Christ specifically had to suffer was actually something that was promised in the past. That was something that um, the, the, the early Jews really wrestled with. As you remember, that's what the, the disciples wrestled with when Jesus would ever talk about the fact that the Messiah would suffer or the Messiah would be, uh, would be betrayed. Their, 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 their minds, their experiences, everything that they've been told just said, that can't be true. So the Apostle Paul is explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ. Translation, Messiah. The Messiah has to suffer and rise from the dead, saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ, or is the Messiah. And that's the message. That's the message that Paul trusted in this context. The Apostle Paul believed very strongly, and and this is where it gets a little bit complicated for me, the Apostle Paul believed very, very strongly that his desire and his, um, his, his calling specifically was to go to places and to share with others the truth about who God is and his plan for them. And the Apostle Paul, in a Jewish synagogue, begins with the Scriptures. And he is about to turn their world completely upside down. As you can tell, it's going to continue. As he goes down to the city of Berea, leaves Thessalonica because things don't go well there. He leaves by night. And in verse 10, Luke picks it up. The brothers immediately sent Paul and, away, uh, sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. Literally that concept of being more noble means... Um, like of noble birth or of noble origin. The Bible describes that uh, the, Luke or Paul, when he is talking to the Corinthian people, says there's not very many of us that are of noble birth. James likes to point out that you do realize that the majority of us here in the church are just regular Joes. Nothing really special about us. That's kind of what the word means. Which is really interesting that God, the Bible teaches, has chosen Those who are just normal, those who are just average, those who are just ordinary, be the ones who deal with and respond very faithfully to the good news of Jesus Christ. It's not just for those of noble birth, it's not just for those of high education, it's not just for those of of great means, but it actually is for everyone. But here, what it's actually describing is not a nobility of birth, but a nobility of thinking a way of of listening and a way of responding. Look at what it says. These Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. Reason, for they received the word with all eagerness. Somehow, the Jews in Berea were able to at least suspend what they had always known and what they had always believed and allowed the word of God past their bias past their barrier, past their upbringing, past what grandpa said, past what they had been taught, and they began to engage it and deal with it. Important for us, I think, 
in these times, as we continue to have opportunities to share who Jesus Christ is, both individually and corporately as a church, I think it's important for us, not just as we share, but even as we receive, to recognize that there is a way of going through life where our defenses, our intellectual, our emotional, and our relational defenses are up. I don't think so. I don't, I don't think that. No, I don't think that's true. And where our relational, emotional, and intellectual defenses are down. In essence, what, what, what you see is in terms of a difference between those, generally speaking, in Thessalonica and in Berea, is a teachableness. An ability to allow new information. I don't think it's just about open-mindedness. Especially when you look at this, this isn't just about life. This actually begins with their understanding of who God is. Closely connected to that, who they are. So many of our, um, our deepest and our strongest convictions about our own identity, who we are, especially in a time when when this becomes increasingly difficult to interpret and controversial to talk about. Where we live in a time where, where we, things that we thought not that many years ago that were kind of set, like gender and orientation, are now being redefined and put on the table. That in the past, we kind of knew what a family looked like, but no, let's put that back on the table. We, we thought we understood, roughly speaking, what marriage was, and now we're putting it back on the table. Listen, I'm not here to lament over the change. I'm here to say that it is important for us to recognize in very specific texts like this that the idea of those ideas that are most uh, firmly entrenched in our thinking and our psyche still need to come under the lordship of who Jesus Christ is, still need to be molded and shaped, not just by our own experiences, not just by what culture is telling us, but in fact, having our defenses down so that the word of God can instruct. I promise you, I understand that it is far easier said than done. I'm speaking about just my own life. But this text does teach me that there are those who are always ready for a fight and then there are those of more noble thinking that are ready to receive the word with eagerness. Now, it's interesting. This eagerness isn't a lack of, yeah, we're not very bright. We're not very smart. So, Paul, we'll just go with you. Now, notice what it says here. With this eagerness, what did they do? Examining the scriptures. That's what displayed their eagerness to go back to the scriptures. See, the scriptures in both cities, Thessalonica and in Berea, it is the scriptures. Examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. I I think one of the most dangerous beliefs that exists right now in our culture is the belief that you can make the Bible say anything you want. And I would even say that if I were to ask in this room, almost all of us would believe that. And therefore, we're already skeptics. 
We're already not believing. We're already wrestling with this issue. It seems like they have a belief, does it not? That we can go back and look in the scriptures and see if what Jim is telling us is true. One of the greatest things that we can do as a church, both individually and collectively, is not just passively receive teachings about who Jesus Christ is, but with eagerness, with an open, dropped defense system, believe that we can find out the truth about who God is and even about who we are. That we can evaluate and think through what culture is telling us and what our family is telling us and what our nation is telling us and what the media is telling us and actually believe that at the back of all of that, that God's word will not abandon us. That God's word will not like reject us. But in the end, we can come to an understanding. One of the reasons why you and I don't actively pursue this is that we already have in our mind a skepticism about whether or not we can understand it and whether or not we can fully do it. And doesn't everybody have some kind of a take on this? I think that has been one of the most destructive things. So by the way, that is why I deeply encourage you, I don't care who's talking, to go back and to search the scriptures. Some of our favorite people, when they come to Sunnybrook and they want to talk with us about being part of the Sunnybrook family, some of our favorite people are those who come and say, hey, listen, I'd like to talk more about this. I'd like to know more about what you believe. We don't take offense to that. If only we all more passionately and with all eagerness, not only received the word of God, but that with eagerness examined the scriptures to see if that was true. There's a gentleman um, that preaches and teaches in England that many of us on staff here have, uh, have been greatly uh, blessed by in terms of his teaching. And I doubt if he, he, he kind of coined this phrase by himself, but he made this comment when talking with somebody who is uh, kind of reshaping the theological landscape. He challenged this other person that was coming up with new ideas. He challenged him with what he called the humility of orthodoxy. What he basically is saying is, one of the most important things that we can do is to recognize like what the church has taught and what the church has believed for thousands of years and to humble ourselves and say, yeah, we can understand that too and we can submit to it. That's what the Apostle Paul is doing here. Interestingly enough, as he is reaching back into their history, this is what Jesus would do, would reach back into their history and say, yeah, if Moses were here, he'd agree with me. If Isaiah was here, he would agree with me. And what Paul is doing is he's not just trying to upset their thinking for the sake of upsetting their thinking. He's trying to help them see that this is what God intended from the very beginning. What is at its very core? We see that in verses 2 and 3. I'm going to read those verses again because it is a great reminder for us. Instead of being tempted at deviating what matters most with us individually and even us corporately, the Apostle Paul and Silas's message was consistently, he reasoned, verse 2, with them from the scriptures explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. And then saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Messiah. They keep coming back to that. 
Yeah, but, and this is, this is my temptation, but they're not listening. I know. There is a tendency for us as a church, individually and corporately, that as we continue to teach the message and when it's met with resistance, for us to try to find a way around it. I don't know how much the world is really interested in hearing about who Jesus Christ is. So what if we gave them something that they would really be interested in, like great children's programming? I don't know how much the world is really interested in peace with God through the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I wonder if we offered them great community that they could have and, and, and relationally build their lives around. Now, by the way, having a place where children can hear the words of Jesus Christ is awesome. And living in biblical community, like it's one of our core things. We call it gathering. So those things are foundational and true, but they are not to be built upon as much as they are to build themselves upon the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. When you are sharing who Jesus Christ is, or you're just wrestling in your, um, in, in your own personal struggle, how much do you begin to doubt or question the importance and the value that Paul talks about as the power of the gospel? I believe there is power in the story. I believe there is power in the truth that only by what Christ has done, only by what he has accomplished, will you and I find peace. Only by coming to terms with our need for a Savior and then God's provision of that Savior in Jesus Christ. That is the message that the church is built upon. And from there, we build other things as a natural result. Well, what about being kind and being gracious? I'm all for it. When you ask me why, it is because I can go back and say, can I describe to you the kindness that God has shown to us through Jesus Christ? The kindness that we extend to one another, the community that we build is because of what God has demonstrated to us through Jesus Christ, who even though was in the form of God, he emptied himself of all of that and he came down so that we might have peace with him again. And it's that kind of kindness. Well, what about taking care of the poor? That is a great question. And it is only by us understanding that God in his kindness was so generous that he would give of himself to this level. And so you and I now have not just a model, but you and I have like a framework to understand that we are so much more than just caring for surface level issues. But we can get down to the very bedrock itself that God in his kindness and in his generosity, though he was rich, made himself poor. Now you and I have a completely different understanding of the wealth that we have, or even the needs of those around us. Right now, there is a crisis in a lot of churches in America over the last few, and for some, almost over 100 years, who have decided to try to find a means or a way of building community or faith on principles instead of on the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And they are struggling, and I, I don't feel bad about it. It should be a reminder to us that what we do is preach Christ and him crucified. Yeah, but my friend says that's just foolishness. Yeah, Paul said they'd say that. 
Yeah, but my other friend just called that just crazy. Oh, no, 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 I get it. And we continue to preach it. And then we continue to build our lives, our generosity, our benevolence, our community, our going, gathering, and growing around the centrality of that message. The response of the people is always going to be the same. And I guess that this repetition has been given to us in the book of Acts so that we would not be discouraged. I know that a lot of people, I deal with this probably, and us on staff, we deal with this on a regular basis. I am sharing my faith and sharing my faith and sharing my faith, and there are so many people that do not want to listen. Luke says that some will believe. Acts 17.4, some of them were persuaded, Thessalonica. Acts 17.12, many of them therefore believed in Berea. But the majority of times there is just opposition. Listen to how Luke describes it. Verse 5, but the Jews were jealous, taking some of the wicked men of the rabble. They formed a mob, set, a city, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. In Berea, but when the Jews from Thessalonica learned about the word of God and how it was proclaimed at, 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 by Paul at Berea, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Literally, the, the word that Paul uses or Luke uses to stir up the crowds is the same word used in Acts 16 about God, or the earthquake that shook up. The same word is being used. There is this unsettling nature that the gospel has caused. And therefore, you and I, individually and then corporately, can understand that we boldly proclaim the authority of the Scriptures. We boldly focus on the coming and the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And what we will see is that some will accept and opposition is normal and natural. I want to close this morning by taking a look one of my favorite sections that I had overlooked for most of my, uh, most of my life, actually, it wasn't until um, I was asked to teach the book of 1 Thessalonians that I really began to kind of take that book seriously. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, I'd like you to turn there because this gives us kind of an insight into those people that Paul spent just those three Sabbaths with, what that was like. And here's how Paul writes to these people about their encounter together and I believe these words will be encouraging words to you. Encouraging in your own faith if you're wrestling and struggling. And encouraging to you if you're really, really, really just almost um, at the end of yourself with um, a spouse or a child or a close friend that does not seem to want to hear and respond to the message of hope that's found in Jesus Christ. Paul describes his time in Thessalonica this way. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. Yeah, but Paul, not everybody believed. I know. Yeah, but Paul, there was, remember Jason's house? Remember what they did to him? Yeah, I know. But it was not in vain. Like it was not, it was, it was worth it. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, he didn't hide that from them. We had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. 
But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, that's why we speak, by the way, because God has given us this message. He has trusted it. He has entrusted it with us. So we speak. And we're not doing it to please men. We're not modifying it and changing it to somehow grow the audience. No, it says here, we're not doing it with flattery or, as you know, or with a pretext for greed, for God is our witness. Nor do we seek glory from people, whether from you or for others. Though we could have made demands of you as an apostle, Paul basically says we came to you, and then he goes on to say, and we shared with you not only the gospel, but our very lives as well. The apostle Paul wants the Thessalonians to know that in the midst of difficulty and in the midst of opposition and in the midst of those moments where they themselves are wrestling with the truth about God and how it's going to completely restructure their lives, that the truth about Jesus is, is, is real and it can be trusted and it's worth building our lives upon and it's worth trusting. And in those moments when you just think to yourself, my wife would sometimes just say, wow, we've tried and we have tried with the kids and, and I don't think they're listening. And I remember one time telling her, he's two. I know. But he's 10. I know. He's 18. I know. He's 26. I know. And the message stays the same. I'm 51. The message stays the same. From Mexico to Poland, from Burkina Faso to Dallas inner city, same message, same scripture, scriptures, same Savior. Let's pray. God, we thank you for what you have done and accomplished through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Give us, God, the desire and ability to pursue you at all costs, to trust you at all costs. God, may we um, allow our defenses, those things that we know to be true, to come down, and may your word speak to us. God, may we trust that there is, in fact, truth in the scriptures when we present that with others. God, I believe that there is um, just a mood, a, a vibe, a, a, an attitude in our culture that Nothing can be trusted and everything has a take. May that not cause cowardice or silence in us. God, we ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And all God's people said, Amen.